You are now listening to The Last Day's Return of the Historic Faith with your host, Pastor Jeremy Anderson and Brother Matthew Marcel. This podcast is for the kingdom Christian in the end times. As aliens in a foreign land and ambassadors of our king, we proudly fly the flag with the cross as we sing. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The fourth watch starts now. Everybody, you're listening to the Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network. I hope everyone's having a blessed week. Tonight's going to be a follow-up to the broadcast we did last month on the Hollow Earth, digging deeper into the beliefs and traditions of various cultures pertaining to the inner earth, its cities, inhabitants, personal accounts, and legends, as well as investigating how it relates to the prophecies that concern the arrival of the Antichrist and his false golden age that's coming in the last of days. We've got a lot to cover, so let's go ahead and start the adventure. Submitted for the approval of the Fourth Watch Radio Network, I call this episode Journey into the Hollow Earth. Hidden Worlds, Nephilim, and the Antichrist, with special guest, Jim Wilhelmson of Echoes of Enoch. Well, it's officially Thursday, and that means it's officially time for the fourth watch. It is such a blessing to be back with you all, and we've got a great show on tap tonight. If you're a new listener, we're very grateful to have you tuning in, and we want to let you know that there's a brand new show posted every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard. Be sure to head on over to fourthwatchradio.com. That's F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find show archives, links to our free mobile apps for Apple and Android devices, links to all of our websites, as well as a donate page that will show multiple ways you can help support the Fourth Watch Ministries. You can also subscribe to us on iTunes if that's your preferred method of listening. Now tonight's going to be the highly anticipated follow-up to the Hollow Earth show we did last month, and by popular demand, we'll be digging deeper into the research and heading down a fascinating trail that's sure to entertain and stimulate thoughtful discussion. Some of these areas we'll be hitting tonight are strictly references to beliefs of different religions and cultures, but in no way shape our doctrine or our theology. But we see that these beliefs of these different cultures and religions pertaining to the hollow earth are oftentimes connected to the arrival of what we as Christians know to be the Antichrist. These are among the topics that are rarely talked about by researchers these days. And tonight we're joined once again by Jim Wilhelmson of Echoes of Enoch, and his website is echoesofenoch.com. So with that said, let's go ahead and welcome on Jim Wilhelmson. Jim, welcome back to The Fourth Watch. How are you tonight? I'm great, man. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I'm so excited about this. 
And uh, I know I just I sounded like a kid in a candy shop last time we got together because it's so rare. I mean, it's so absolutely rare for me to meet somebody, a fellow believer, who has done the type of research that I've done into the hollow earth. And so it's it's really cool to be able to, to sit down with you again. And tonight we're going to be getting into what are the beliefs of what what exactly what the beliefs are that are going on inside the earth. Many of the cultures have their their oral traditions or their written legends about worlds or parallel universes inside the earth. Um, and obviously, we're we're definitely going to be taking a biblical stance on these things. But as Christians, we want to know what the other people are writing and believing because it helps us get an understanding of what's going on today. So tonight, we are going to be getting into what's going on inside the earth, at least what's purported to be going on inside the earth. And then we're going to compare it to some of the biblical views. You know, it's it's funny. I for any anybody that hasn't been on the first uh, series that we did, you know, I don't take offense when people laugh at me or when people start spouting off the earth solid. It can't be hollow. And, you know, this reason or that reason, because myself, I had to go through a um, sobering experience by the Lord, because when I first heard this was in 1996, I first heard about an escape group of Nazis that went to the South Pole, created a base 211 made contact, found the opening to a hollow earth and made contact with people inside. And and so they were in cahoots from that moment on. This was after World War II. Um, I laughed. I rolled around on the floor, literally thinking, my gosh, this new Internet, because the Internet was only a couple of years old by then. And and so I thought, you know, this Internet, man, almost anybody can put any kind of wackadoodle thing on there. And this is just the craziest thing I ever heard. Well, it was only about a week later my son come up to me. He knew I had this Bible study program, about 80 different reference books, point, click, point, click. What took me uh, uh, maybe hours to do could be done in a minute. So I was just really geeked out on this program and doing all kinds of word studies and different uh, topical studies and everything. So he come up to me. He says, Dad, can we do a study together? Now, he's 12 years old, just coming into, you know, all the male weirdness that happens when you, you know, are in that age group. And, uh, for me to encourage him to get into the Bible on that level, heck, I was proud as all can be. Then he finishes his sentence. He says, can we do a Bible study together on hell? <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm trying to keep a, a poker face here, but I mean, I'm, I'm going, geez, kid, can't you pick anything more upbeat than that? Seriously? And I just smile and I said, sure, son, we'll do one on hell. So as we started doing it, it was like the Lord tapping me on the shoulder and saying, Jim, you're sitting there laughing. I'm trying to show you something very serious. So as we're looking at, at different scriptures about hell, these scriptures are just leaping out after I get the idea planted in my head of a hollow earth of, you know, this expedition of the Nazis going down and everything. And my gosh, I'm seeing it going back to the original languages because my son and I, we, we look at the surface rendering and then we would go back on certain keywords, look it up to see what the actual word actually meant. And I'm getting a whole different view and I'm going, are you serious? My gosh, the scenario, everything that I was laughing at was there in the scriptures all the time. Some of these things, now at that time, I already had been, uh, you know, a Christian like 25 years, a minister for 22 years. So, I mean, it was just, you know, it was just shocking. So I get it when people laugh because I grew up being taught, you know, there's a, a core, a mantle, um, and a uh, surface, you know, but you now the Bible teaches something quite different. We did most of that. I think most of those scriptures in the first, uh, uh, program. So we probably need to skip that and go by. You know, the thing is that that the myths, legends, tales, um, traditions of, of all the native peoples all over the continent is just as worldwide 
and consistent as uh, the, the tales of a flood. And every culture, every group of people group has some kind of a creation story that seems to include that they originally lived in a subterranean domain. And then for some reason or another, there's a variety of cultural reasons why um, they had to leave the inner to live on the outer surface of, of uh, the planet. That's even why the New Agers call the Earth a Gia, a mother, the idea of um, the Earth having a womb and having a birth. Even in Proverbs, there's a scripture where David is, uh, I mean, in Psalms, where scripture David is talking about describing that he was formed in the, the uh, lower parts of the Earth. Well, when you understand culturally, traditionally, there was a key word there that was used that was synonymous with the birthing uh, canal and two, you know, the two tubes of, of the, uh, the uterus that, that was comparing to and like the earth having two pockets or two chambers. So they were comparing one as the other. So uh, it was a common thing back in those times that we don't understand today, but this is what was being described. Otherwise, you would have to believe that he was born in hell and was constructed there. No, that, that wasn't what it was being said. But he was using that word that was synonymous with uh, the earth being like a, uh, a birthing chamber and the woman having the same thing. Um, the patterns of the two chambers being identical and even what Jesus had said about um, Lazarus and the rich man, that there was um, a lower chamber, Sheol, and then there was a great divide separating them, and then there was an upper chamber of Abraham's bosom. And as I said the last show, Abraham's bosom, meaning that when people wore togas, they would tie them off at the waist, and then the upper forefront was called a bosom. It was a pocket. And you would go to market, or if you were a shepherd, you would put the, the stray little lamb or something in this pocket, or you would put your groceries in this pocket. So Abraham's bosom was a inner pocket, literally inside the earth. Even in the intro today, I've mentioned the scriptures in Job where Satan was, you know, he was asked by God, where have you been? You know, where, where did you come from? And he said, well, I've been you know, walking back and forth to and fro up and down in the earth. Yeah. And a lot of the newer translations, the people who translated these Bibles, they, they have a misunderstanding of things, and they try to rationalize in their translating. And that's what the King James literally says, inside the earth. And these newer translations that are, again, based on rationalist views to some of the words, they say on. And I think we, have, we, we see the same thing as we get into the mark of the beast. Um, the King James makes it very clear that this mark will be in the head, in the hand, uh, as opposed to the newer versions, which say on or on. So... There's definitely stuff going on inside the earth. I want to make a quick point here. Um, many of you listening are familiar with the movies that have come out, Journey to the Center of the Earth. And I think part two is called Journey, Journey or Journey Part Two. Um, but, you know, you had uh, Brendan Fraser in the first one. The second one, you had The Rock. But what's interesting is these movies have these movies have a basis. They were inspired by the book written by Jules Verne. This book was published back in 1864, I believe it was. But it was a science fiction novel. But what's interesting is this book was written with much research put into it, and it was written so based on the the beliefs of different cultures and the writings of different researchers that many people basically held this book as their Bible almost when it comes down to wanting to study the inside of the earth. And they, they took the writings of Verne, and, and even little cult groups were started, and people wanted to journey into the earth based on the writings of Verne which were strongly based on the cultural beliefs of these different groups around the world. But, you know, basically some of the claims, and I want to look at some of these claims tonight, is as you enter into certain areas of the earth, 
people are claiming that there are prehistoric animals, you know, natural hazards, um, all kinds of strange occurrences taking place inside the Earth. And as I covered previously in my old series on the Hollow Earth, we talked about Admiral Byrd's account, and he talked about basically it was almost like a shift, almost like a dimensional shift, and all of a sudden he's not seeing ice anymore. You know, he, he's he's basically not seeing the icy realm uh, of the pole. He's now seeing what looks to be uh, a deciduous and luscious forest and woolly mammoths. So, I mean, this stuff is unbelievable, but I feel like it's important to drop in the, the you know, just a plug about Jules Verne because a lot of people have followed his work, even though it was science fiction, it was based on real research. Yep. Um, and that's, you know, and there's even books earlier than that that, that uh, describe pretty much the same kind of conditions, woolly mammoths, uh, middle deciduous forest or um, even tropical forests other authors of other books that have actually made major impacts in, in uh, history, not just, you know, in movies, but you're right. You know, a lot of the movies, when they make these movies, they do background research. And so they refer to any, you know, earlier myths, legends, books, written theories, ideas, you know, whatever. A, a, a good movie is going to do that to try to make it a little more realistic. But there was a book written in 1847 called uh, the, Coming, the Coming Race. It was by Sir Edward Bullitt Lytle, who was an Englishman, but he was uh, a member of the Golden Dawn Secret Society, and he was a high mason. Now, his book was never taken for just pure fiction. His book was based, most occultists anyway, or, uh, or Gnostics, believed that it was a fictional book veiled as fiction, actually telling real truths. And the basic idea was the earth was hollow, it was a concave, you know, the convex side and concave side, it was a mirror image of what was outside. Um, this guy is uh, spelunking through a cave, uh, ends up falling into a deeper cave, and he keeps walking, and it's uh, next thing you know, he opens up into a whole entire new world. There were large, um, large Caucasian people with strap-on wings. They were very strong. They were stronger than a normal human being. They were uh, brilliant. They had a super uh, advanced society underneath the world there. And they had strapped on wings that uh, they could fly because they had the strength to be able to make these wings like a bird fly. So it was kind of, I think, uh, alluding to angels or some angelic type beings. But um, he went on. They looked at him as kind of like a pet, you know, something that was cute, nice. They didn't want to hurt, but, uh, you know, uh, nothing to be on a on a level relationship with they were that far advanced and as he understood there was a there was a waiting on their part for an expectation that eventually they would encounter some surface dwellers that when they formed an alliance they would retake and reclaim the surface world for themselves but for that time they lived and dwelt and stayed somewhat reclusive um, and separate from the rest of the world so uh, he ends up escaping or something and, and getting back uh, to the surface now these people also had carried around on a staff a crystal, and through this crystal, their minds could project through this crystal, make things materialize, uh, do all the godlike quality things, be able to speak to animals, subdue anything and everything. Um, it was an unlimited source of power, and they called it the power of the vril. Now, I know that makes it very familiar for you because we know that there was a secret society called the Vril Society. It was actually based on this book. And it ended up becoming a part of the Tula Society, 
which made the Nationalist German Workers Socialist Party the Nazis. An equivalent to that today would be as if the Star Trek fan club merged with the uh, Masons and ended up creating a, an agenda that led to a war that killed 50 million people. That's crazy sounding, but that's, I mean, to an American equivalency, that's what it would, would have been like in the early days of Nazi Germany. A science fiction book generated an entire secret society based on its idea of the power of the Vril. And, of course, we know one of the saucers that they had developed was the Vril saucer. Um, you know, it's just it seems unbelievable. How could something so out of the box, so obscure, end up becoming such a prominent, important thing? That's the impact that books can have on society. There was another book called The Smoky Gods. Uh, it was about a trip of a Olaf uh, Hansen, uh, or a Norwegian, and his father in 1829 that, that uh, sailed out. And they actually they were merchants and, they, and fishermen, and so they were sailing, going to different places, and they ended up uh, going into the North Pole. And they were as their boat was sailing, all of a sudden the water got warmer. All of a sudden they're no longer seeing clear sky. It's just kind of a, a real cloudy, subdued uh, smudgy kind of a gray sky the water gets real warm all of a sudden they see woolly mammoths they see tropical they're in a land that they stayed there for months of large caucasian people that lived underneath that um um were much taller than them i think it, like eight about eight to twelve feet tall um i'm trying to remember some of the other things about it oh they said that where they lived was the former called Eden, and they dwelt there for, I guess, several months and then finally came back to the surface and then had this story, which, um, let's see, the writer was uh, um, Willis George uh, Emerson. So, uh, and this other writer, Sir Bulwark Lytle, he also wrote a book called The Last Days of Pompeii. That's what he's noted for. That's where the movie came from. Um, so he wasn't just a sci-fi writer or something, someone obscure. He was a well-known writer, highly respected, that did some pretty normal stuff. But then he did the really out-of-the-box one, which was called The Coming Race. Now, um, Justin, I don't know if you're familiar, but there's a new movie coming out. It's a sequel from uh, Iron Skies called The Coming Race. I'm familiar with Iron Skies, but I, I did not know about the sequel coming out. Yeah, they've got, they've got a sequel coming out called The Coming Race. And, of course, Hitler's on a T-Rex coming up to... Um, I think it was Sarah Palin, the president. They should have probably had Hillary on there instead, but um, she was actually an alien. So she's in the South Pole. She goes to the underground complex and she says, it's done. And what it meant, what she meant was they started World War Three on the surface. So Hitler's on this. He comes riding up on a T-Rex and then he's got a leash on the T-Rex and he jerks it and makes the T-Rex raise his little tiny hand to a Hitler thing. It's very comical, but. Well, they do that. They did that even with the first movie. Um, they're, they're actually putting in a lot of information that people believe very, very much so. Um, it's like they're putting in – there's a large group of people uh, who do believe the Nazis set up a base on the moon. They basically – they believe that the Nazis, uh, Hitler and, and some of the others, made it up into uh, one, of their, one of their spacecrafts, and they made it up to the moon, and they built a base. And the movie – Basically, it, it, tie, it digs into some of this research, so it presents some of the information that does go back to a lot of beliefs, but they make it into a comical or a satirical uh, format. And you know, with them doing this, it kind of chips away at some of the research into these topics. Now, I'm not saying that I believe there's a base on the moon. Um, you know, I've never been to the moon, but um, <laughs> I'm just making the point that there are some seasoned researchers 
they do believe these things. And when they make they make fun of them in these movies and they're presenting the real information, the real research, um, whether it's true or not, they're still presenting it as satirical. And it's like as entertaining as these movies can be, they're chipping away at the people who are doing the research. Well, you know, Gary Busey Jr. Uh, starred in a movie. Um, now, my book had been out for about eight, nine years, and they make a movie, Nazis uh, uh, at the Center of the Earth. And they're at a Camp Nephilim in the South Pole, and Joseph Mengele is living in a hollow earth, and he's conducting experiments to extend the life uh, of, of human beings beyond, you know, a normal life and, and doing all kinds of Frankenstein experiments and everything. And they kept the head of Hitler, and he's put on a robot that looks like Bender from that one crazy, uh, I don't know, it, it's some kind of a, I don't watch the cartoon, but I've seen it a couple times, uh, this guy, this robot guy named Bender. So it looks like him. So it, it starts out as a movie and ends up like a cartoon. It's so comically ridiculous and so poorly written. It's terrible. <laughs> and, I'm sitting there laughing, and people are emailing me all over the place. Jim, did they use you as a source? I mean, they copied your book. My gosh, it's there. I said, no, it's the way that they make a mockery of my book and make it look like either I borrowed from them or whatever. I said, I thank God that that my book has an original copyright of 2004. Their movie is uh, like, um, I think it was 2010 or 2011 when the movie came out. So, yeah, they, they do that to blur everything, to make everything look ridiculous or funny so that the, the seriousness of the issue is just made into a laughable, laughable uh, thing. But there's been uh, quite a few movies out recently uh, dealing with the two primary things that I always said for the last 20 years are the missing elements in our, our um, biblical understanding of prophecy. One was our concept of space-time and the actual reality of time travel, and the other was the reality of a hollow earth. If you miss those two things, you really miss a lot of what's going on in the scriptures. I, I think one of the biggest proofs is whatever's something is coming from out, from inside the earth to the outside in the last days, the locust invasion of Joel's second chapter and Revelation's ninth chapter. You know, this is something literally is going to come out from inside to the outside. So there's a theme there. And I find it funny, and I'm sure you'll agree with this, that what is always closely associated with the idea of the hollow earth, cavernous openings are that there's people, big, and, you know, I hate to get to this emphasis on Caucasian people, but I didn't make it up. I'm not being a racist. I mean, in the northern hemisphere, we find giants at almost every base of every major mountainous area with all of the Indians having folklore and and uh, descriptions of cavernous systems that that where they originally either came from their forefathers, but now there's these giants that come out. Uh, my gosh, they even, some of the Indians would, would, the reason why they would raise their hand and go, how, like this, they're counting your fingers. Do you got six or do you have five? So this is a close association. Um, let's see, what is, for an example, the, um, the um, Hopi Indians were big on this. They, they are the ones that mainly raised their hands up because they wanted to count the fingers to see if it was safe or not from a long distance. They have wall reliefs showing giants chasing after them. Um, we have, uh, let's see, what was the, um, oh, the Seminoles in Florida lived in some pretty advanced structures. And so when the Spanish came, they said, you know, how did you learn how to do this? And they said, well, we didn't. There were white giants that came up and, and built these, taught us some things, and then left. And we occupied their their uh, villages, their, the places that they built. We didn't build these. 
that that was the land. I'm gl- this is so crazy that you bring this up. I don't want to get on a tangent here, but last week we broke down the Netflix series called Stranger Things and how it was based on Project Montauk. And uh, Michael Herr was one of the – we had a, a three-person panel, and Michael Herr made the point that before they landed he, – he said basically before they landed on one location in New York, he says they actually started with two locations for Montauk. There was one in Florida, and then there was one in New York, which obviously Montauk. And he said that these lands were chosen because they had high-technology history in those places, um, basically going back before the Indians. Yeah. Well, and, you know, and there's uh, all your burial mounds in the Midwest area where I'm from um, and even in California. I mean, we've, we've got burial mounds all over, but there seems to be a higher concentration, especially in the Great Lakes area. Um, they even called them copper giants because copper was closely associated, you know, with the giants. But, you know, you, you dig into these. These are not Indian uh, mounds. Even the Indians, the native Indians will tell you, no, these were here long before us. And when you dig into them, you find seven to nine foot tall, double road teeth, six digit fingers and toes, giants with red hair. This goes right back. I have to throw this in, and I know I probably bring this up more than I ought to, Jim. But going back to the claims of the Vatican, uh, there are claims even from people who are high up, people who are part of the world system. And they claim that underground, literally underground from Vatican City, there's a city of elongated skull creatures they're caucasian they got really big bright colored eyes and they're living literally under the vatican inside the earth you know we're getting prepared i mean the vatican is getting prepared for all of this i don't know you know on the 33.3 degree line we're kind of getting off but i think it's it's definitely related and we probably need to go here on a 33.3 degree latitude line a little bit above or a little bit below a lot of strange things it was my friend dave flynn who first uh, through a cop's crop circle that was copying the logo for him and Mark Flynn's um, computer company. It was a gray alien holding a disc. Now, they noticed this was from Crabwell in 2002, this uh, thing appeared. They noticed there was an American Codex uh, computer system, uh, I mean, computer digital something encrypted in this disc. So they deciphered it, and it came out to be uh, – it had a message. I can't really remember the message, but it also had – Latitude, longitude, based on uh, a prime meridian from the French before we had the, uh, the Greenwich Standard. And so it gave coordinates and dates with a math system that I'm not even going to pretend to understand or, or know. Um, Dave had that. That was his expertise and Mark. The, Dave and Mark Flynn really see this world as a, uh, as a matrix in digits. And they've got the, a math down. It is pretty phenomenal. Well, anyways, he was showing how. On a 33.3 degree latitude on Mount Hermon, which is where it sits, and with uh, Sedona or Sidon just above, which is in close relationship to Sidon or Sedona Mars, uh, Sedona Arizona, uh, all of these things almost reflect the same mathematical coordinates for different objects and, and places in that area. Uh, it's almost like a, a copy or a mirror image of it. Well, anyways, he was saying it on 33.3, which Occult-wise, is the highest level of uh, knowledge that a human is able to un- understand. That's why we have 33-degree Mason. On this 33-degree line is where the, the uh, fallen angels first descended out Mount Hermon. 495 miles due east is where they were deified as the gods and goddesses, where the Tower of Babel was. Now, if you travel all the way over across the other side of the world, in what I call New Babylon, the United States of America, 
He ended up in downtown Roswell, New Mexico, where the where the crash happened, where I say was like a second coming of these um, hybrids, now pretending to be aliens that were once the ancient gods and goddesses. Now, I t- I called up um, Dave one time and I said, Dave, I find something really amazing. There's a mirror image. If you look at the Euphrates and Tigris River and how it combines together, it's identical to the Pecos and the Rio Grande River and where it comes together. They're both in valleys. Roswell and and Baghdad are almost like right in the same area. I said, so I'm thinking if I took from that point and went 425 miles due west, I'm in the Sonoa Desert in Arizona, right next to Phoenix, Arizona, with Sedona, Arizona up above. And then it's on the 104th longitude line. Latitude. I get them mixed up. The one going up and down. Anyways, right on there is the top of Yellow Medicine Butte, which means brimstone, which is sulfur butte. And it's almost identical topography as where Mount Hermon was. So it's almost the same but opposite mirror image. You know what the next nearest city is? If you take the 104 and go directly north, that's where Lucifer uh, Telescope is. Oh, Mount just, Graham. Yeah. And then just above it is Baghdad, Arizona. And it's in the, it's nestled in the heart of the Aquarian Mountains. And Baghdad, Arizona's sole uh, resource is a copper mine. I mean, you just can't make this stuff up. It's just too weird. Well, it's interesting that you bring up uh, Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon, um, because when you get into reading some of the history, that was an occult epicenter at one point. Yes. And what they would do is there was an opening that people don't a lot of people overlook this fact that Mount Hermon, I, I say Mount Hermon, but, you know, whatever. Um, literally, there was an opening at the base of the mountain. It was a cavernous opening. And what a lot of the people would do was they would take their sacrifices, their animal sacrifices, and they would sacrifice them and throw them into the cave. So they were literally putting blood sacrifices inside the opening of this cavern. Now, I, I haven't done a lot of digging to see how far the cavern goes down or how many tunnels are connected to it. But it's interesting that they would have put blood sacrifices to their pagan gods into that opening at the base of the mountain where the fallen angels descended upon. And that is exactly where Jesus gave his sermon about the gates of hell. Exactly. That's, I mean, you know, it wasn't by chance. That was by choice. God was trying to make a point. And there are, there are other places, many places uh, at the bases of mountains where, you know, this kind of um, same thing happens in, in – uh, the Mandarin people uh, believed that there was a, they were emerged from a subterranean land uh, along the side of the Missouri River. Um, if you're familiar with the uh, Superstition Mountains, um, this is just right outside of um, Phoenix, Arizona. Uh, for centuries immemorable, people have disappeared. You can go to uh, that park right now, and they will take your license before they allow you to come into the park. They record your car, the make, the color, uh, your driver's license, so that if you disappear, they know who to look for. There's so many people that disappear from there that I'm sure you've heard of that. What is it? The 441 with the ex-cop investigator. Um, You know, this is one of the premier places. And it's, it's funny because all of the places he's talking about where all these people disappear are also associated with caves. The same legends of a subterranean origin of uh, these giants that come out, 
whether it's the Inuit people up in uh, Alaska, who said that these, I can't remember the name they call them, but they were giants that occasionally would come out and they would grab them and eat them. And, yeah. uh, and this was a well-known thing. Or if it's on the very base of uh, Argentina, um, uh, Brazil, there's, there's all kinds of legends of at the bases of caves where people disappear in that area where uh, large um, red-haired giants come out and occasionally grab people for a, a lunch or whatever or come out and just generally terrorize the, the local neighborhood. Um, these things are all connected. Now, I found a scripture. And again, it's in Job, and it's going to probably be very controversial, but I don't care. I, I know it's there, and I carefully did this, and the Lord led me to it. But um, it is describing about two words for scales. One is a circular, and this is, again, talking about not Benny and Cecil, but it's talking about a location of some of the rebels and where they live in the inside. It's talking about um, round, circular something that is used for defense and then the other word with it says hollow tubes now i'm looking at this and i'm going why is the word scales have two different words and they're totally not talking about a scale they're talking about a circular defense but they're hollow tubes it's the circular cavernous systems that exist all the way around the world that protect the inner chamber that's what the word is actually telling you and so why do we and so we have all these legends of cavernous systems and actually, that is their defense to protect the inner chamber, the inner chamber of a hollow earth. What would you believe the inner chamber is that's being protected? That is a, a, a concave hollow earth with a central sun that, see, gravity is pushing down on the surface. But on the inside, you do literally have an inner sun suspended um, from gravity that's pushing the opposite way. And all the continents that are, that are on the surface are a mirror image on the inside. So that, okay, where Eden was, where we figure we're by the river Euphrates, is the surface. But there's a counterpart underneath where the real Eden actually existed, our origin being from inside. Um, people can, can want to, you know, say that's crazy or anything. It's already been established. Watch the first edition that you and I had, uh, Justin, and I show you all the scriptures that don't even put this in speculation. This is sound Bible doctrine. The earth is hollow. I can't explain. I'm not a geophysicist. I can't tell you all the specific details. But I know my Bible says that the earth is hollow. Jesus went down there and pronounced a further judgment to the angels that are sinned, that are down there. This is interesting because in the Bible, when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden for their sin, the Garden of Eden is now protected. Um, was by the flaming sword. Right. So nobody can go into the Garden of Eden. And that's why people think they're, they're on these missions to try to find the Garden of Eden. But you're saying that the original Eden is inside the earth, that um, mankind was inside the earth and basically in the first created atmosphere inside the earth. And then now we're outside the earth. Yes, exactly. Yes. And right. You can't go there, or at least you can't go where the tree of life is. That's what's being guarded. I think uh, this, um, what is his name, Olaf Janssen, he went and he saw and he was part of something. Now, that circular, uh, the, the, the sword that's waving in a circular, when you go back to the original Hebrew on there, it, it could be a sword, but it could also be some kind of a circular defense or something that is preventing people from actually going right into that very area where the tree of life is. You can't get there because that, that would 
put a big kibosh on everything. God is protecting that, not allowing. So it could be that they could go into the North Pole air opening area, because that's where you would find that. It's in the upper chamber. But And you might kick around the edges, but you're not going to go where the tree of life is. So the inner chamber is literally off limits. You can't see it. You can't get to it. It's protected. I, yes, I, I definitely think so. You might get into the fringe of it, like Olaf Johnson did, like Admiral Byrd did. That, now, there's an interesting I, – I have a personal story on this. I don't know whether I shared that last time or not. Uh, a book called um, The Lost World of Agartai uh, by Alec McClellan. Now, he has a testimony of, of a deathbed confession to the filmmaker that made a film in 1929 with the expedition with um, Admiral Byrd in the North Pole. And they were flying, and all of a sudden, as they were flying – now, they didn't go into like another dimensional kind of thing, but as they were flying, all of a sudden – the sky seemed real cloudy. All of a sudden, it got really warm, and then they saw and filmed a woolly mammoth. They filmed tropical vegetation. They filmed a terrain that shouldn't even exist. Now, he said that that was made into a movie. It was shown at uh, as a limited showing at Movie Tone News in between the movies. You know, in, in the old days, uh, you wouldn't remember, but I remember the stories from my grandfather. Um, they would have news broadcasts of different, you know, sensational things going around the world uh, in between while they were getting the, the other film, you know, prepared or the second part of the film or whatever. It was like a, a intermission type thing. Well, his claim was that it was on a limited showing in various cities in the country only for a couple of weeks. And then it was taken off and everything was hushed up. There's a famous book called The Hollow Earth by Raymond Bernard, <clears throat> who is a Ph.D., and a, a geophysicist, and his book, The Hollow Earth, um, I was going to order it as a kid in 1964. And so I asked my grandfather about it. He was a, a metallur metallurgical inspector for uh, Chrysler Corporation. Um, really honest, really a really neat guy. Well, anyways, I asked him about it. He says, and I kind of laughed. I said, The Hollow Earth, that's silly. And he says, oh, no, no, Jimmy. I, you know, I saw a movie one time, and it, it was really real. Admiral Byrd went into the North Pole, and he Showed the movie showed um, a mammoth. It showed some tropical things. That's really real. You should get that book and read it. And I thought, Grandpa, you're kind of, you know, you're kind of up there. Maybe uh, you don't really remember anything too well. Well, you know, and I always, I never paid it too much serious attention to it. I thought my grandfather was just kind of old and feeble or something. I was so stupid. Uh, it wasn't until forty some years later that I'm reading this book. And there's this guy on a deathbed confession telling me that that movie that my grandfather saw was real. So for me, this is a very personal, you know, reality slap in my face that my grandfather remembered seeing that movie. It was only on, you know, the one time that he went to the theater in Detroit and saw it. So I'm going, oh, my gosh, this is real. This really happened. So we have that record. Well, it's gone now. Nobody's got the movie, but we have a deathbed confession, according to. Um, this Alec, what's his name? Alec uh, McClellan. And the testimony, in fact, that my grandfather told me years ago as a kid that, that he saw that movie. So for me, it's very real. Well, that's just that, that's a, that's an eyewitness account because I, I broke down the claims of Admiral Byrd. Uh, literally, I went I went line by line through his journal of the events that took place, and I broke that down in in the old series that I did uh, about two years ago, roughly. And, you know, I, I had not heard of the film, to be honest with you. This, this is this is just adding more weight to the research because I knew the claims. I believed the claims. But 
the film and then having your grandfather's eyewitness to it, that's that's pretty mind blowing. I got to say that kind of hits a grand slam here. Oh, uh, you know, Justin, I'll tell you, man, a lot of my life, I've always asked a lot of questions. I've always been interested in history. Um, and now it, it almost seems like all of that was in preparation for me being here. I, the Lord has seemed to put me in the right time and the right place for so many things, um, whether it be the illeg- illegal immigrant thing. I learned a lot from my Hispanic Christian friends when I lived down in New Mexico. That was in the very beginning when all of this was you know, first started in 2006. Living next to Dearborn, I grew up in the Islamic culture, so I know it as good as I know the back of my hand. Um, you know, it's just, it's incredible. I mean, uh, a good friend of mine uh, became a friend to a, some 90-year-old guy that lived across the street from him. He was an occult scholar. I got books that you're not, I'm not even supposed to have by all the different secret societies, the original books. Um, I got quite a library of, of stuff. Included in that was 68 rolls of microfilm from the OSS uh, Nuremberg trial proceedings, and then all of the occult gathered information that the Nazis I got all the original resource evidence that the OSS had collected. Um, what are the chances that I could ever run into that kind of stuff? Now, I have a friend who reads German, because all of it's in German, so I don't know. You know, I was looking all through all of these to see if any Heinrich Himmler or Hitler signed any of them. I couldn't find any so far, but that would have been kind of cool. But even finding that one book by H.M. Howell, the only book on the whole world, and I find resource to it. This almost identifies my whole life. It seems like I've always been able to get stuff that's impossible. I happen to be in the right place at the right time and don't even realize it at the time how significant it would be for later on. So, Okay, now real quick, I just I don't want to backtrack too far here, but I just I want to make sure I'm, I'm on the same page here, and I want to make sure everybody else is, is understanding what you're saying before we move on any further. It is your belief that before sin entered into the world through Adam and Eve, it's your belief that they lived inside the earth, inside the original Eden, which man cannot get to, but they were inside the earth. And then as soon as sin took place, they were commanded to leave the garden and live life on the surface of the earth. That's what you believe. And I'm sorry to bring it up again, but it's kind of just blowing my mind over here. And I want to make sure I understand and I want to make sure everybody else does too. So that's what you believe. When they booted out of the Garden of Eden, they were booted out of the uh, the inner realm to the outer realm. That's why we have a global, worldwide account of our origin being inside the earth. And I mean, and this is in every land, every every place. The Germans have a uh, let's see, what was theirs called? Um, oh, uh, of course, it was called Valhalla. But um, they had the idea of an under underworld. Um, let's see, what was it? It was called well, Valhalla, and there's some other word too that they, some of the other Nordic uh, nations had, and I can't even begin to pronounce it properly, so I'm not even going to try. Um, the Greeks had uh, their idea of an afterlife and an origin where they originated from that was underneath the subterranean. Uh, the Tibetan monks. Uh, in Buddhism, they believe the place that they originated from was Shambhala. They believe that there's still secret chiefs that, that rule the world. And, of course, Maitreya, that is down there now, through the uh, Himalayan mountains and some of the cavernous systems, they believe that they come in contact regularly with the ascended masters. This is why the Nazis had an expedition to Tibet in seeking a hollow earth. 
Now, this, this is actually where I want us to move next. I, let's go ahead and get into how the Nazis got tied into Tibet. And, uh, I, because this is, this is huge because the Nazis, they conspired to create these relationships with the Tibetans. And they, they, they kind of went over there initially, if I'm not mistaken, they went over there and said, you know, we want to kind of investigate the zoology and some of the, uh, the geography. But in, in reality, they had a whole ulterior motive for what they were doing in Tibet. So break down that idea. Let's get into the Nazis' connections to Tibet and Shambhala. Well, here's the interesting thing. They didn't really have to deceive the, um, the Tibetans. The Tibetans identified and recognized the Nazis for who they were. They believed that they were on the uh, the end of the fourth Dharma cycle, entering into the fifth. They knew that there was going to be a negative part of Shambhala, that, of people that would come to them, that they were prophetically going to help to bring about the fifth, the beginning of the fifth cycle, the new cycle. So when they saw the Nazis, they recognized that here is, here is the people we've been waiting for. So they opened up the doors. They let them go into the, uh, the caves to do electromagnetic uh, uh, research, um, size and graphing. They even showed them what I believe were pre-flood texts that allowed them to understand further some of the technologies and also finally finding the opening to an, a hollow earth. The Dyspiegel uh, news after the first uh, expedition claimed that they had finally found the opening to the hollow earth. This was Dyspiegel was like one of the main, like the Washington Post of Germany. And, uh, you know, it's there. You could probably not get a copy, but you can get a photocopy or a digital copy of, of the original announcement. So the next thing happened was they had an expedition in 1939 to the Antarctic. They cordoned off an area and, and claimed it as New Schwabenland. It was the Queen Maudland area. And they set up a base, on Base 211. And then all, all before, during, and even after the war, submarines started going in that area loaded with people. Uh, they found submarines en route that had that were only supposed to be uh, a capacity for like uh, a crew of 20, and they'd find 100 people in there. Uh, the interesting thing is they found tons of mercury. One ship had 66 tons, another had uh, 33 tons of mercury. One was on its way uh, through the, uh, the very narrow gulf at Malacca, and it was sunk. Now, people had challenged me before, oh, it's, you know, how can you have that many, that much weight? I said, well, you know, it did sink, didn't it? But the thing is, I did the math on it just because I wanted to have a better answer for myself even. And 33 tons of mercury would only be about uh, five foot by five foot cube square. That's all it would take. Of course, it's a lot of weight. But the, you got to think, why would you have mercury? In 1943, 44, 45, mercury was used as switches or for thermometers. It wasn't a military payload for anything. But when you understand the technology behind um, a UFO, or let's say the German-made UFOs, mercury was the heart of the whole system, because it was mercury through a vortex implosion that produced a new form of flight. Believe it or not, Justin, they got that from the symbol of Hermes and from, um, uh, what was the other god? Mercury, the god of commerce and trade, the god of healing, um, goes all the way back to the god of Anu and Anubis and An, the same God all the way through, all about death, resurrection, life, and fast travel. So they looked at the, it's, and we call it, it's our medical staff. Um, you look at the two serpents intertwined around, around a, um, a pole that has either one or two polarities, 
and then you see the wings of flight. The Nazis looked at this and they said, okay, this is the way they took myth and legend. They believed that technology was encrypted in all of this, even the Contalunti serpent power of chi and everything. They looked at all of this as physics, not not just uh, myth. And they said, okay, if we take the element of mercury and put it into a vortex, like a cyclotron, like the rodent, most recently the rodent donut thing, and put it at an accelerated speed, it will continue to go to an infinite speed without any hindrance. The only thing is trying to keep it cool. And there's, they've even added barium and some other elements to be able to do that. You make a, a mercury vortex and it implodes and it creates a super amount of electricity or anti-magnetism. Uh, it literally warps space and time around the vehicle. So a dead vehicle now is no longer subject to the physical realities of this present plane because it's created its own electromagnetic force. So it slips around at fantastic speeds, can stop on a dime, the people don't feel it inside any more than we feel uh, living on a globe that's spinning around. So incredible stuff, but mercury has been proven now to be the element that is the heart of lighter, uh, faster than speed or faster than light travel. All of this was derived through the occult, through ancient myths and legends by the Nazis, and they were in pursuit of, of a hollow earth to align themselves with what they believed was a pure strain from the diluted strain. Now when you go back and you see that Cain was sentenced to wander in the land of Nod, east of Eden, if that's inside the world, then east of Eden is where the land of Nod is. Now think of it as a mirror image. That's on the inside. If Nod is east of Eden, on the surface, it would be west of Eden. It would be the western hemisphere. Why do we find large Caucasian giants all throughout the western hemisphere in particular? Because we are the land of Nod. On the surface, the Western Hemisphere would be from from the Eskimos down to the uh, Argentinas on the very tip. And all of them have all myths consistent with red haired giants, Caucasians, six digit fingers, double road teeth with some of them. Just like the Bible uh, talks about um, uh, what is the King Og, who was a Hittite, um, which is a white. And then the last remnant of giants after the flood that were killed. Joshua and Caleb went into all the different cities, wiped out everything. The last bastion of survivors went into Ashgod, which is one of the five cities of the Philistines. Guess what? The Philistines were big, bad white guys with a bad attitude. Joshua and Caleb killed them all, except it's even recorded in, um, I think it's in the book of Numbers or Exodus, that, that they killed all of them except one group escaped. And they escaped into Ashkelon, which was five cities of Philistines. From what I've studied, some of them became uh, seafaring people, or, or not people, but but giants, and, and they made their way up, uh, some into Europe, some up through South America, and then up into North America. But getting into the hollow earth idea of everything, they would not have, I mean, there would have already been giants over here. I mean, there would have already been giants living on this area because the Indians have, have, have recorded for, for many, many years that the giants were coming up from inside the earth, even in North America. So... Maybe they were coming over here to kind of network with the, you know, the rest of their brethren. Well, the thing is, some of them, for whatever reasons, went on the surface and chose to live on the surface. I think it diminishes their lifespan by doing that. But for some reason, they chose to live on the surface, which means they had a, a diminished lifespan and, and probably were subject to, you know, more intense rays of the sun and, and the environment and everything. 
the inner earth would provide a, an atmosphere and chemical composition, pressure, everything that would be equivalent to the life before the flood, where people lived to be 900 and some years, where they, you know, where everything seemed to grow without limit. So that's why we find fossils of uh, five and six foot wingspan dragonflies, which now they're only three or four inches. Um, fish that, you know, were larger, elephants, um, the woolly mammoths, you know, just all, everything had an unlimited growth potential in that environment. But now that the canopy has been broken, the more intense rays, everything breaks down. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's not like that on the surface anymore. But for some reason, and so this is my premise, that, that some of the giants came from the inner earth to the surface to cohabit again with human beings and to mingle in their civilization. I don't know why they chose to do that, but they did. Not all of them, just some of them. And then we see a historical trail, like you said, from the Philistines being a seafaring people. Now, the thing is, who do the Philistines live next door to? The tribe of Dan. And you see the globe trotting. I, I say that the Philistines and the tribe of Dan pretty much were kind of buddy-buddy, and they kind of went to the same places all over the, the globe. And they ended up in three major areas. One was Russia, one was Germany, and one was England, or at least in the Ireland area. The Irish, they have a folklore and legends of, um, uh, let's see, what was the name of that? Uh, Krakan, which was uh, a, a cave that they believed they came originally from, and that uh, the Tau Didanen were there then. The Tau Didanen is the tribe of Dan. So there's just all kinds of crazy connections that even icons, the Hittites had a shared belief with, with the um, Philistines of the same Dagon-type uh, god, same kind of um, ideas on their origin, on everything. And they had as their main icon for both was the swastika. And that kind of followed them all throughout history, all throughout land. I think the swastika goes all the way back to the sons of God in Genesis 6. That was their symbol, according to Helena Blavatsky in Theosophy. So that symbol has kind of followed all the way around, just like the eagle has always followed the symbol for the tribe of Dan. So in Germany, it's rather interesting if the Philistines and the tribe of Dan reemerged again, and their icon was a eagle with a swastika. And they're in search for their internal relatives. The Philistines were Infested with giants. We know this. Right. Going into Russia, we, we all, and I covered this a while back, but this is kind of interesting that in Russia they found two alien skulls, or what they're calling alien skulls, very strange-looking skulls. They, they have no resemblance whatsoever to a human skull, and they don't even look like normal Nephilim skulls. I mean, we're dealing with skulls that almost look like gray aliens mixed with hammerhead sharks. <laughs> but what they found, um, historically, this is where the Nazis were. Uh, the Nazis had gone and they'd found Ananerba briefcases there with the Ananerba logos. They found a lot of artifacts there from the Nazis in Russia, and they found an opening into a certain spring of water, which uh, I'm probably getting this wrong. It's been a while since I've talked about this, but they called it uh, something along the lines of the water of life. And it has something to do with um, they can create some kind of a supernatural blood plasma for humans out of this water. And I know it sounds like something out of a movie, but this was this was right over in Russia where they were doing these experiments and they were on expeditions. Um, it doesn't surprise me because part of their agenda, they were looking for the um, what they believed um, the Holy Grail. 
Right, right. They were digging in a cave, and uh, I believe it was under Lake Ritza, and they called it the Living Water. And I just think it's interesting that the giants ended up going over there. These Nephilim hybrids of the Philistines would have made their way over to Russia, and then years later we find this. We also find out there was an underground pyramid that they found in Russia. I believe it was actually near Crimea. Um, Russia is also the place where they have found a uh, allegedly found a completed um, fossilized skeleton of a satyr. You know, they have they, they have their own ancient myths and legends. Uh, they have a myth that uh, that four giants were put into the Euphrates River and held and prevented to come up to the surface until the till the uh, last days of the world. And that's the interesting thing. Most of these do parallel somewhat to the Bible. Now, the Hopi Indians, that, that really flips me out because the Hopis believe that they had originally come into contact with the Bahana, which were the white brothers from the scars. Um, these white brothers were depicted as larger than normal size. They were Caucasian, blonde-haired. And what they wore, they copied and put on their teepees as a sign of good luck. <laughs> and you could look this up. Look this up on Hopi legends of end time, end time prophecy. They're going to come back someday and save all of mankind. The two symbols that they had was the German's Knight's Cross and a swastika. Okay, so they believed that, they, that there was going to be a return for the uh, salvation of mankind. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, yep. this, this actually is a parallel going back to Shambhala. I just want to make this point real quick about Shambhala. Um, and, and people, I don't recommend spending all your time on this because obviously, you know, we don't have the same religious views as these people, but it's an interesting thing to look into. And if you do take the time to dig into some of the Tibetan sacred texts, you're going to find out about this mystical kingdom, Shambhala, but you're also going to find out that according to the teachings in these texts, that it was prophesied, and you already mentioned some prophecies of the Tibetans, but it's prophesied that a future king of Shambhala, again, Shambhala being this, this kingdom inside the world, it's prophesied in their text that there's a future king of Shambhala that's going to come with a great army to free the world from barbarism and tyranny. And literally, this king of Shambhala, according to their prophecies, is going to usher in the golden age of the world. Now, this is, this is interesting because we get into the idea of I mean, first of all, we know the world, the prince of the power of the air, the king of this world. Some people have a hard time when we say that Satan is the ruler of this world. But the Bible tells us that. The Bible says it. I mean, it's right there in plain English. The Bible says Satan is the ruler of this world. And the Lord has allowed this for the time until the end. And so what's interesting here is that Satan is setting up his kingdom, literally getting more and more powerful. He's setting this kingdom up for the end times rule. And we know that there is going to be an antichrist who is going to be this king who is going to usher in a golden age. And that's that's a loose uh, breakdown of the scripture. But interestingly, you're talking about the Hopi Indians, and they're saying this that they're expecting uh, some group to come and usher in this golden age, a savior. And then the Tibetans say that the king of Shambhala inside the earth is going to come out and usher in this golden age. We also get into the biblical text about the locust army. And, I mean, th th this is mind-blowing because there are so many parallels uh, between what the Bible says and then what these other religions of the world say, and it goes back to inside the earth. Yes, it does. That's that's why it's such a significant, important element that's missing in our prophecy. We're we're not getting it. We're not seeing. You know, there, there's two different things that um, that Jesus, in His Word, and one He directly spoke. 
He said that there would be a tribulation such as never has been before and never will be again. Now we have another scripture where it says, and time will be no more. That's in Revelations 10, 13. What does that mean? Does it mean an end of a system or an age, or does it mean literally time as we know it, linear time, comes to an end? I say it's the latter. It really is. It's a manipulation. The tribulation, the agitation, is not just governments of this earth, unrest, nuclear war. Heck, we've probably already had nuclear war. You look at some of the Indian, uh, the Baha Navita describes a nuclear war and all the residual effects after a nuclear war with, with radiation, radioactivity, um, you know, the sickness and everything. And to add to that, we have vitrified cities. That means sand that's turned to glass from an instant blast. Shadows of people that are no longer there. Skeletal remains with twice the amount of uh, radioactivity that they should have for the assumed date and age that they are. We've got empirical evidence. We've got written historical evidence that something happened. We also have that in the Bible in Genesis 6, that man had become so wicked they had polluted and destroyed the entire world they were fighting each other and, and just evil imaginings all the time. That include nuclear war. And we got all the proof of it. So everything it's been doing now is nothing new is under the sun. It's been done before. After the last show we did, I had a few people write me who believe in the flat earth. And, you know, some of the flat earthers have no problem with the hollow earth. But some of them say it's impossible. There's no poles, blah, 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 blah. Well, I, I'm going to make this point real quick. Go back in history, because we do know that there are plenty of cultures around the world, ancient cultures, that did believe in a geocentric Earth. But if you go deep enough into their belief system, they not only believed it was geocentric, but they believed underneath the geocentric plane, there was a whole other realm underneath it. And uh, even going back to the Scandinavians, th this is interesting, Jim. And again, I don't subscribe to the Flat Earth view. But this is interesting because even in the Flat Earth, uh, one of the ancient beliefs of the Flat Earth model, according to Scandinavians, they believe that the pole would have been, the North Pole as they called it, would have been an entrance into a big mountain where they called the Tree of Life grew. They called it the Cosmic Mountain. Now, I'm only bringing this up for the sake of people who do listen, who are Flat Earth. You know, I'm not going to divide with you over your view on the Flat Earth, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I know there's a couple of you, at least a couple of you out there, but... Even if you go into the ancient cultures, people who believed in a geocentric earth, they still believed that the firmament continued underneath and that that was a covering of another realm inside or what we'll call a subterranean land. So don't write me telling me that there can't be a hollow earth because you believe in a flat earth. Because even though you believe in a flat earth, there is still a subterranean according to the ancient models. So I don't prescribe, I don't subscribe to the flat earth, but I just want to throw that in there because I, I don't want people writing me and trying to criticize our, our view of the hollow earth because hollow earth is 110% biblical. Well, you know, on, on my uh, position on that, the Bible describes that there are a group of people that would try to make a nest amongst the stars. That's in Obadiah. In Jeremiah, it says that there's a group that would try to ascend into heaven. And both of it says that uh, he will cut them short. He won't allow them. What's making a nest amongst the stars? That's colonizing. That's occupying. You go back to the original Hebrew, it supports that idea. It's you're trying to occupy a position or place, a dwelling place amongst the stars. Now, that wouldn't be mentioned unless it was possible, which means there's a real space. There's four corners of the earth. There is no real actual four corners of the earth because it's not a cube. It's not square. Even on a flat earth, there's not four corners. But there are four cardinal points that are four points of electromagnetic points. Two of them are the north and south openings to a hollow earth, and the other two, as described in Jer uh, Job 41st chapter, 
are revolving doors. Sometimes they're open, sometimes they're closed. Jesus said there, there was a great chasm that separates the upper chamber from the lower chamber. This chasm is some kind of a thing that has an electromagnetic pull on all the disembodied spirits. How do I know that? I go to Peter. Peter says that they are reserved into everlasting chains of darkness until the, the day of judgment. Okay. How do you, if they are disembodied spirits, my little logical mind wants to ask, how do you shackle a disembodied spirit? He has no physicality. How are you shackling? How are you chaining up this entity? Because the word for shackle can mean a shackle in its general sense, but it also means a power or force that enables one to go up or go down. What's this up and down process? Well, play with a Ouija board sometime in your home and see what happens. You open a portal to allow things from inside the earth into your home, maybe even into your mind. Yeah, we're not recommending this, by the way. Yeah, no, don't. This could ultimately lead to uh, demonic possession, or I don't even like to use that word, trespassing. It could lead to a lot of distress, a world of hurt. You don't want to do that. Anything contrary, God made one way to obtain wisdom, knowledge, revelation, um, and whatever, and that was through prayer, through one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. You're, you're just making a point about the Ouija board, of course. Right. I'm just saying, you play with that, you're going to conjure up something from inside the earth into your home to be a part of your life, which you really don't want. And it would be based on the, the principality of that area, basically. So like if, if you're um, practicing some type of seance or spiritual communication, some people call it spiritism or spiritualism, if you're, if you're operating in this type of a seance, wherever you are, generally you're going to communicate with uh, the demonic spirits that are, um, we'll just say, local to that area in the earth. Right. They're assigned to that area. So they're allowed to come up into that area and make their influence because you invited them by entertaining this uh, thing. So someone like me, you contact, I come in and we, in the name of Jesus, command this thing back down where it belongs into the pit. And so it goes. So it's an up and down process of being conjured up and then brought back down. This is exactly what that other word for shackle means. And so when you understand that, that is the system they're in. You know that associated with any kind of demonic possession, UFO appearances, um, even um, the British uh, equivalency to Project Blue Book, when they, when they finally did their disclosure, final assessment of all their investigation, they said that it appears that UFOs have more in common with poltergeist activity, ghost demonic activity than it has any kind of alien influence. And there was a final word on it. And it was based on the electromagnetic anomalies that can also be recorded or it can be sensed or seen or even smelled. So this is consistent with what the Word of God says. It's a cycle of going up and down. So where does that electromagnetic uh, field exist? It's the great gulf fix that Jesus talked about. Um, the wings of the wind, or winds rather, has a symbolic or allegorical meaning as gravity. I realize it is confirmed only by the book of Enoch in 18th chapter in the Ethiopic version, but it's describing the winds and it's describing gravity to a T. And it even concludes with, uh, in association with this winds, that I saw the pathway of the angels. What are they traveling on? On this electromagnetic grid. What is a place that has revolving doors? Sometimes they're open, sometimes they're closed. That's along the 33.3 degree line. It flipped me out when I saw the Devil's Triangle is slightly above the 33.3 degree line, and the Dragon Sea, exactly opposite on the outside of the Earth, is just below the 33.3 degree line. 
Both of them are sometimes open, sometimes closed. Things disappear, they don't ever come back. When CERN is in the right conjunction of firing up, when the Earth goes into a rotated axis, and this is, just throw it out quickly, when this happens, the Earth will go through a rotation. It's found exactly in the 24th chapter of Isaiah. It's talking about the earth reeling to and fro like a drunkard, and then he took the kings, or the high ones on high and the kings of the earth and put them in a pit until they would be visited. This pit is the bottomless pit. This is this anomalous electromagnetic thing that keeps them going up and down. It doesn't keep them from escaping. It holds them until a purpose is fulfilled prophetically. That's exactly what Peter says. In Isaiah 24th chapter, it talks about exactly what the Lord did when he went first he descended into the bowels of the earth. He went into hell, not um, to suffer, but to be the victorious. He said he made an open show. He humiliated them. And then he said, okay, you tried to cut me off the pass in Genesis 6. I have fulfilled all things now. I am. You're dead. You're not going to rise. You are the Rapha. There's no resurrection for you. But I have interceded. I have visited you. Visited the same word that's in uh, Isaiah 24 chapter. I have visited you. And I will raise you up, mustered up as an army is literally what that word means. And it also means to interfere or to to overrule the natural course of events. So the first two statements up above is a natural course of events. But he has visited you and caused you to even your name to be to actually destroy you. And even your name will be forgotten. So this is the judgment that was put on them. Their only hope, they know they're going to be raised. Their only hope is consistently doing everything the same but opposite that Jesus did and they think they're going to win. So the two lies in the Garden of Eden. You should surely not die. You'll be as gods. You'll, you'll, your eyes will be open. You'll be as gods. This is actually two promises that Satan had. He's going to circumvent God and provide his own second-rate, cheap-rate, eternal form of body through transhumanism, through cybernetics, through cloning, through all the modern Frankenstein technologies that we're already working on today and through the manipulation of space-time, creating an eternal body and an eternal environment. I believe when CERN fires up, not only are they going to overlap or bring, or as uh, Job 41st chapter says, a folding together. Folding together of what? Of the X and Y axis. You have a literal physical uh, bottomless pit going from the North Pole to the South Pole. And you have an etherical bottomless pit going east and west, and that's along the um, the 33-point line that, that Jesus said was the uh, Great Gulf Divided. It's actually a, some kind of an electro-anomalous um, area that is the key to the, a bottomless pit. Imagine, you know, the angel comes down with a key to the bottomless pit. You put a key in, something shifts. It folds two axes together and lets something out. That scenario is encrypted in the book of Job. 41st chapter tells every little detail that there's relatives that look like them that are coming down, that they're uh, making an alliance, and that they're going to fold this together and release the prisoners. When you see the Goddard Tunnel that was just uh, opened up from CERN to Germany, have you seen that uh, little video? Oh, absolutely. The ritual that took place. It's prophetically telling you, here's prisoners that are shedding their prison things. All of a sudden, they're getting naked and, and you know, getting crazy, hedonistic, uh, same sex, every sex, any sex. There's this horned uh, bayonet that's jumping around and hooting and hollering. And, and they're coming out on the other side out of a wormhole. I mean, now recently they're talking about this human sacrifice that had been taking place there. 
another thing, Justin, that just happened to be, you know, I, I do these um, as a vendor. I go to uh, holistic healing shows, you know, at Gibraltar. It's like an international trade center, a big flea market kind of thing. There's all kinds of site. It's a new age, like a little great. What better place for me to be? I provide counseling from and deliverance from unwanted paranormal problems. That's how I'm able to get there. I've been sharing with some of these psychics. We've had yesterday, uh, last weekend, had four four people get saved one day and one person the next day. Amen. People are ready, and it's it's just it's just pouring out wild. Well, one of the people that I ran into, she was a, an exchange student. She worked at CERN when it first started uh, getting off the ground. She said what she saw horrified her so much she canceled the whole thing, went back home to America, and didn't want nothing to do with uh, CERN or anything. And uh, she said that when she saw that sacrifice, she recognized the exact room where it was. She said, "This was real, Jim. This isn't. This wasn't fake." So, so you're you're not talking about the outdoor sacrifice, alleged sacrifice video that people are posting right now. You're talking about something totally different that happened inside of CERN in the building. You know what? No, um, Justin. Whatever that was, the popular one. She said that she was there. She knows exactly what where that was. I thought it was inside in the room. I haven't seen it yet, so I don't know. The CERN situation is getting more and more heated, and they're they're carrying over. I think I made reference to this last week. Uh, more students from American universities, uh, these different technology schools. Um, a lot of times NASA will, will come in and say, hey, uh, we're going to give you an internship, and they do well at NASA. And then the next step is they get approached, and this is all while they're in school. This, I mean, they are literally young, brilliant minds in the university system working towards technology. And then NASA picks them up, gives them an internship, and then the next thing, hey, by the way, um, you've you've got a little interest from this group over here. We'd like to fly you out to Switzerland on another internship, but an extended internship out of the country. And then they go over to Switzerland and they work for CERN and then they come back. Some of them come back freaked out, but some of them come back feeling like they're working on the next big evolution of the world. And that's what they are claiming that they're doing. That's why India gave them that uh, statue of Shiva doing the dancing of the particles or destruction of particles. And literally, Shiva is the god of destruction, but the idea of the destruction of destroying an old world in order to bring in a new world. And that theme is another one that is almost universal. But it goes back to the hollow earth too, Jim. Yeah, it does. Because the Hindus' view of hollow earth is very similar to the Tibetans. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about bringing in that end times ruler who's going to, quote unquote, deliver the world from the bondage that we're in, and they're going to bring about a golden age. So it's all it's all working together here, and these cultures all have their hollow earth views uh, did the last time we talked, Jim, did we talk about the uh, the Hollow Earth view of Tartar? No, we did. No. Um, why don't you go ahead? Because I'm a little foggy on it. I mean, I know Tartarus. I, I mentioned something about the Greeks. I didn't mention Tartarus. In ancient Greece, there was a myth about a place called Tartar or Tartar. And uh, it's basically um, it's an ominous underground world. One of the Greek philosophers had built a model back in the 5th century AD. And he basically created this model. Um, and it showed a flat Earth surrounded by an air sphere in a cloud of what they call ethereal, you know, material. But he wrote about there was a parallel world within it. And basically, these cities of this ethereal world were populated by celestial bodies. Now, interestingly, the Apostle Paul talks about celestial bodies. But it's interesting because the Greeks believed that in this, in this parallel world inside of the earth, you know, or under the earth, because again, th- this particular philosopher had the the view that the Earth was a flat plane, but he still believed that there was a a subterranean world where these spiritual bodies existed in these cities. 
But another thing I want to I want to throw out here real fast is that in the Native American cultures, they had the same the same view. Um, and we've already touched on this briefly. But when the giants would come up, you mentioned the giants coming up out of the earth and eating flesh, like devouring flesh, human flesh, animal flesh, whatever they could get their hands on. And the book of Enoch talks about this as well. But the Native Americans, they had this belief. And so when you get into the Native Americans uh, of Mexico, and I say America because it's, it's, it's one big continent, but um, in the Mexican region of North America, what you find is that their belief, they have the caverns and the subterranean caves that go down, and their belief system is that their gods and their demigods had to go down into the realms of the earth. We talked about this briefly last time we did our show together, but they would set up the kingdoms on this world, basically. They would come up, they would create their hybrids, and then they would go back down. And the hybrids, for the most part, at some point on the timeline, the hybrids would have lived on the earth, but then they would go into the earth, and then they would come back up out of the earth. So it's kind of an interesting parallel because the Native Americans had a very similar account where the giants would come up and then go back down. So I just want to show that all these cultures are pointing to the same basic idea of what was going on, but they have a couple little nuances that are, that are slightly different. Yep, exactly. Um, I think, and even in the, the um, some of the Mexicans in their folklore, they tell of uh, of the, or I'm not going to pronounce this probably right, it's O-J-I-N-A-G-A, Oyanga, I think it, the, the J is silent, it's, I think it's Oyanga. And they were, that was a name they had for these, uh, devilish kind of creatures who would come from inside the earth out and, you know, play havoc. Kind of like the Chapacubra or, you know, um, the, uh, what's the other guy? The big hairy guy. Sasquatch. It's, yeah, thank you. I am having a senior moment here. Yeah. Um, again, you know, they're all associated with, with, uh, a subterranean domain and, you know, uh, near cavernous systems. Um, uh, you know, it's, there, there's a consistency and a pattern that can't be just uh, coincidence. There is no coincidence. Well, recently, you know, they found the the two, and again, this is alleged. I haven't really dug too deep into this, but the idea of these two pyramids that they found underwater off the coast of New York. By using Google Earth, you can zoom in and see these things. They're kind of interesting, especially when you zoom in and you clean it up a little bit. They appear to be um, just these weird monuments underwater. Some are saying that they're pyramids, but some are saying that they're actual obelisks from the ancient world. Um, it could be that these are just some strange growths underwater. Uh, it could be that they are from a antediluvian world, or it could be something totally different that they're part of a subterranean realm that come up into these pyramids. I don't know, but I wanted to bring that up because somebody wrote me and asked me to, to mention my opinion on that. And I wanted to get your take on that. Are you familiar with these pyramids? Yes. Uh, matter of fact, there's some in Minnesota. There's some in the Midwest. There's some, I mean, they're everywhere, all over. Even in our states, I mean, um, a bigger one that's even in um, along the Mississippi somewhere. They're they're everywhere. I mean, they're they're grown over now. They just look like a big hill or something. But when they do uh, uh, infrared, they see that there's actually a pyramidal shape that's underneath this big old heap of dirt. Um, and what is intriguing is it's hard to get any archaeologist permission to go ahead and dig. They won't let them dig. Why? Because they don't want you to know all of this. I truly believe that the pyramid system was a Wi-Fi system that existed before the flood. I also, here's something to keep in mind. Um, if you see this succession of events and what happened, you know, we're taught in grade school that there was uh, one continent called Pangaea, and then it slowly expanded out. Well, I say that it instantly, you know, was separated, and that was at the Tower of Babel. They had all of one language and one speech. When you look at the 
language and speech. What tipped me off right away? That's redundancy. What do you mean one language and speech? It doesn't make sense. So the word for speech actually means one borderline, one hem of a garment. It, there's, there's various uses, but it basically is saying one shoreline. So you're one continent. That's Pangea. And then instantaneously, it was ripped together, uh, ripped apart. Uh, the proof of that is where, in, and of all things, it's where we usually ignore that stuff. And this begot, this begot, this begot. Well, in the begots, um, it says, and, and, uh, and he begot Peleg, for in his time was the earth divided. When you look at that in the Hebrew, the earth literally means ripped apart instantly. That's why we have woolly mammoths with um, uh, tropical buttercups and other tropical life undigested still in their, in their stomachs. They were one time in a, a warm uh, tropical environment and then instantly frozen, freeze-dried in ice. Um, people had, tell, had challenged me, well, woolly mammoths in, in hot weather, why? Um, well, because their hair was hollow. Their hair was actually a giant radiator to keep them cool in the intense heat of a tropical environment. So... We see all these evidences and everything because we got to keep in mind that Genesis 6, the world before the flood, was one continent. When everything was ripped apart, that's why we say the same consistent things all over the world. Because we're looking at the, uh, the antediluvian society, the culture, uh, Atlantis, Mu, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, that's what we're seeing. So it doesn't surprise me that we find these things all over all over the world. I just had an email actually this last week, but I made the comment that I believe that at one time before before the Tower of Babel, that the continents were all one. Yep. I said they all fit together like a puzzle. And in school, they taught us this. They basically taught us it was called the continental drift theory uh, back in elementary school. But even as a child, that made the most geological sense. And then when you compare that to scripture, when the chaos eroded after the Tower of Babel was destroyed, that's where I'm, I'm right with you. Like you literally, this is crazy because you and I didn't even talk about this. I no. just, I just emailed this, uh, just a few days back to this person and I explained that I believe all the continents separated after that. I don't know how I got into that in the email, but somehow that came out. And I think it's just kind of cool that that's, that you brought that up. That does make the most sense. Um, now real quick, Jim. Um, I know we don't have a lot of time left. You mentioned the Bermuda Triangle. I know that th that's a topic that you could really do like a whole, goodness, a whole hour, two hours talking about. Well, in the Bermuda Triangle, I believe that that is the rotating doors described in um, Job 41st chapter, which is the Great Gulf Fix. This is somehow people innocently are being sucked into this. Their sense of time, they've only been gone seconds. Whenever this opens up and everything comes out, it'll look like a fake resurrection. The dead in Christ shall rise first, and we which remain alive, you know, will be caught up. So think of Satan performing a, a same but opposite. If he has a phony rapture where New Agers have taken, Christians are left behind. It turns the tables. Silly Christian, you'd had it wrong, but the New Agers are actually completing all of your expectations, just as Jesus had completed all of the Jews' expectations. So everything's going to be same but opposite. So if you're going to have a phony rapture, you're also going to have a phony resurrection. So who comes pouring out? Just like in the movie uh, Close Encounter of the Third Time, uh, Third Kind, you have all of these people suddenly coming out. And I think even one guy that you don't really want to come out, and that's whoever Apollonus is. And I've got my ideas, but I don't want to play pin the tail on the Antichrist. So we'll just have to wait and see because it'll be an aha moment. Now, you do agree that whoever this is, whoever this Antichrist is, that he will be the quote-unquote fulfillment of the 
Gnostic prophecies involving um, all the different hollow earth theories around the world. All these hollow earth religions are waiting on this uh, this king of the inner earth to come out and bring about the golden age. Yes, and and my take on on the understanding that the Lord has given me on the the locusts ascending out of the bottomless pit. I know genetically we could probably create a weird grasshopper with a human head and hair and everything. But you know when the Bible can interpret itself by itself, we have eight points of reference. This it's describing if we use that method, it's describing something totally different. It's not a grasshopper at all. They're creating a portal to relocate these things in another place. That's the key to the opening of the bottomless pit. What is doing that? Probably CERN during an Earth uh, rotation. During, you know, I mean, just there's a lot of other factors that have to be integrated at the right time and right place. Satan knows when that time is. God knows when that time is. We're going to find it very soon, I think. Well, Jim, I know we are all out of time, and I want to thank you so much again for coming on The Fourth Watch. I want to plug your website for anybody who wants to visit it, which is echoesofenoch.com, echoesofenoch.com. You also have a YouTube channel. We've spoken about it last time you were on the show. Let everybody know how they can find you if they want to follow your work. Just look in Facebook under my name, Jim Wilhelmson, W-I-L-H-E-L-M-S-E-N. I have uh, that same name. You can go to to, uh, YouTube, and I have... Uh, about 120 videos posted. Some of them have been removed. Some of them have had the sound eliminated. And that's not my fault. It's not even YouTube's fault, but some kind of new directives or something that they're actually, not just me, but a lot of people are finding that, that all of a sudden now they're under um, uh, copyright violations and they're knocking off. And it's funny, it's always by theme. Anything that is against Islam, anything that is against um, Obama, Anything that connects Nazis with uh, technology uh, seems to have problems now with uh, with um, copyright laws. So, but you can you can see my videos there. The ones that if you want to, you can contact me. I'll find a way to uh, be able to pass that final one uh, to you. Awesome. Well, Jim, it's always a pleasure, and uh, I, I love talking about the Hollow Earth. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to come on the Fourth Watch again. And uh, man, looking forward to talking with you again. It's like we talked for over an hour before we even started recording the show. And just to be able to air that hour, people would still enjoy it because it's just so many interesting topics that tie into the Bible, where we are as a world, uh, the timeline, just awesome things. Looking forward to having you back on again. So much to talk about uh, from the Fourth Watch Radio Network. Thank you so much again. And uh, God bless you, brother. And have a great night. All right. God bless. Thank you for having me. It's always fun. Thank you so much. Well, that was an interesting discussion, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I now want to move us into our Bible study segment as we continue our expository study of the book of James. Over the last few weeks, we've been taking the journey together through chapter 1, and tonight it's with great joy that we get to begin chapter 2. I really want to encourage everyone to take notes and spend time reflecting on these passages after the fact, never rushing through any of them, but absorbing every detail. I want us to head on over to James chapter 2, and we'll be working our way through the first nine verses tonight, starting with verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. We're being told that we are not to play favorites and hold certain people above other people as Christians. It's not part of our saving faith to show partiality. Now, in my line of work, it's common to show a few different options for a media project to the client. The client will look at them and they'll say, well, I'm kind of partial to this option. 
The client will literally be basing their judgment solely on personal taste or desire, generally speaking. Now, it's one thing to have a bias when choosing a preferred meal or even a business option. That's okay. But when dealing with people, it actually carries an entirely different weight and meaning. And as we're going to see tonight, it is unacceptable for Christians to operate in this type of practice known as partiality. By definition, partiality is an unfair tendency to treat one person or a group better than another. It is generally characterized by the term unfair bias. How would this potentially look in your life as a believer? Let's go a little bit deeper here, verses 2 through 4. For if there come unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in a good place, and say to the poor, Stand thou there, or sit here under my footstool, are ye not then partial in yourselves, and are become judges of evil thoughts? Now, we're getting a really personal example of what this looks like in a real-life situation involving people in church, Christians, followers of Jesus. A rich man and a poor man walk into your church. The rich man is decked out in a nice suit, he's wearing shiny jewelry, and he looks like a baller. People tend to notice when someone like this enters into a room. But the poor man walks into the same church and he's wearing dirty and shabby rags and he smells bad. In the text of the Bible, we see his clothes being described as vile. This word comes from the Greek word ruparos and it literally means filthy, absolutely filthy. Now remember how everyone notices the rich man coming in. He walks in with his bling bling and everybody stops and notices. Well, when the poor man walks in and his filthy rags, everyone notices him too. But people's responses are totally different in the poor man's entrance. James draws the picture here and he says that when you welcome the rich man with open arms, you escort him to a nice seat and you make him feel right at home. Well, there's nothing wrong with that unless you don't offer that exact same treatment to the poor man. But unfortunately, that's not what was going on here. The problem is that the rich man gets special treatment in the church, but the poor man is told to go and sit over there or even to sit down on the floor next to somebody's feet. The rich man gets treated like royalty, while the poor man gets treated like a dirty, flea-bitten dog. And unfortunately, ladies and gentlemen, this probably describes most of the American churches and quite possibly this may even be describing you. And James says that if any of us are operating like this in the body of Christ, he says that we are showing partiality. And he says we are guilty of operating as judges in our evil thoughts. As believers in Jesus, we are to show this same exact love and respect towards the rich man and towards the poor man who enter into the church. We are to be just as concerned with both of their needs and never allow the temporal earthly things to impair our judgment. Some of these pastors today would want the rich man to feel more welcome than the poor man, because there is monetary gain that oftentimes comes along with wealthy men in the church. But the poor man has no money or wealth that he can bring to the church's books. 
And because of the shallowness and the ungodly culture that we live in, most people wouldn't even want to be in the same room as this stinky poor man who hasn't bathed in two weeks. But in God's eyes, this is evil judgment. This is wickedness. And this holds no place among the believers. That's what we're being told here in this passage. This behavior holds no place among the life of the believer. This was going on in the days of the apostles. And this is still going on today. I've heard stories of people visiting churches and being ridiculed for not meeting the desired dress code of the old busybodies who ran those churches. Those folks are not only running people from fellowship. They might even be running people away from hearing the gospel message that have never heard it before. And they are committing wickedness in the sight of God. Now verses 5 through 7. Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? But ye have despised the poor. Do not rich men oppress you and draw you before the judgment seats? Do not they blaspheme that worthy name by the which ye are called? This is heavy. James says, listen up. He says, pay attention right this second. He says, shame on you. He says, you know better. God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith, but you have disregarded this truth and you have despised the poor. He says, let me remind you that it's the rich men who oppress you. It's the rich men who drag you into court. He says, it's also the rich men who blaspheme the name of Jesus. Now, we need to understand something here before going any further. In our previous study on chapter 1, we discussed the rich and the poor in dealing with humility. And we were dealing with Christians. So there are Christians who are wealthy, who do operate as good stewards and do great things for the kingdom of God. But on the other hand, the people who seem to be railing the heaviest persecution against the church and oppressing the church and suing the church, well, they're also rich men. I've never heard of a poor man who wears rags trying to force legislation that oppresses the church of Christ. But I've heard plenty of stories, and most of you probably have too as you follow the news, where wealthy lawmakers are trying to force their Luciferian agendas on the church in the courthouses of America. We also need to note something else here. When someone walks into the church, as described by James, it doesn't give us any notification that the rich man or the poor man were members of the church or what we would call regular attenders. But perhaps, on the contrary, it's simply stating in Scripture that these two men walk into the assembly. It seems to describe that it's possible that these men are simply walking in as guests. So not knowing anything about these two men besides the fact that one is rich and one is poor based on what they're wearing, we are to treat them both with the same respect the same care and the same love, basing nothing on their appearance or social status. And I'll go even further, basing nothing on their perceived social status. Many times, people act a certain way or dress a certain way trying to give off this appearance that's not even true. So at the end of the day, you're not only sinning if you give special treatment to this rich man, But you might be giving special treatment to someone who's not even rich, but who has you absolutely fooled. Talk about a double whammy. Now moving on to verses 8 and 9. If ye fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, 
thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Ye do well. But if ye have respect to persons, ye commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Wow. James is making a reference back to the royal law here. I'm going to rearrange this passage just for the sake of your understanding. He says, if you fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you do well. But in the middle of his statement, he quotes part of the royal law, which is to love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot operate in this royal law if you're operating in partiality. But why can't you have both? You may be wondering. Let's compare and contrast verses 8 and 9 a little bit deeper. You either love your neighbor as yourself and fulfill the royal law, or you show partiality. And in showing partiality, you commit sin and you're seen as a convicted transgressor of the law in God's eyes. So James is saying it's A or B. It's not a matter of having your cake and eating it too. You can either love your neighbor as yourself, or you can show partiality and you can be seen as a transgressor of the law. Can't have both. The royal law that James makes reference to here takes us back to the words of Jesus in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. We did hit this last week, but it's a reoccurring reference that we have to remember. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. Jesus said, this is the first and great commandment. And then Jesus goes on to say, and this second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So James is referencing back to the teachings of Jesus. And he's explaining that by showing partiality towards people, that unfair bias, you are indeed breaking the royal law. And he goes on to explain that you are seen as a transgressor. And the entire law and the prophets can all be summed up in loving God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, and loving your neighbor as yourself. It's important that we don't forget this. This is paramount to the Christian life. These are the commands that we are to live by. Jesus told us this. He said the whole law is summed up right here. But I have a question. Why would you want to show partiality to somebody anyway? You think their riches are going to bless your soul? Well, Jesus taught us in Matthew 6 that we shouldn't store up treasures of this world because they will be destroyed by moth and rust. And he even goes on to say that even thieves in this world, robbers and thieves will seek to break in and steal those very treasures from you. Those earthly treasures will hold zero weight in the life that is to come, friends. We cannot take it with us. And likewise, we cannot show partiality to somebody because of their social status. It is wickedness, and it's not a characteristic of the true faith in Christ Jesus. And I encourage you to apply this to your life in general. Sucking up to a teacher or a boss at work in hopes to achieve some kind of promotion or financial gain? How about this? Showing special customer service to someone who's wealthy in order to get a higher sale number. Partiality is partiality, and it is a matter of the heart. It boils down to living your life within an unfair judgment process that seeks to leech blessings from other people. It's actually the opposite of agape love if you want to get down to the root. Remember, agape is characterized by loving and serving without expecting anything in return, while partiality is the antithesis of agape. 
It is a superficial, fleshly practice that only seeks to benefit you somehow. Now, I understand that you want to spend time with certain people because you get along better or you have more things in common with those people who you call friends. That's not partiality in the context of this passage by any stretch. I mean, there are plenty of people that I don't like. I don't like their attitudes. I don't like their actions. This is not partiality. And we are not commanded to hang out with everybody. So go ahead and take that breath of relief. (laughs) This passage is dealing with the way that you treat people. And it is a calling to live up to the loving standard of Jesus Christ. And for us to show the love of God freely to all the people that we encounter, regardless of that person's status or lack thereof. Regardless if that person can benefit you or not in regards to the things of this world, we are to treat them with the same love that Christ shows us. This is one of those things that we have to pray through. We have to take inventory and discover just how we've been operating in light of Scripture. None of us, not one, have behaved perfectly. But seeing the high calling in tonight's study, you have the opportunity to make right and to start showing the love of Christ freely and openly to all that you encounter. It is not always easy, but it is possible with the grace of God and his supernatural provisions. And how do I know it's possible? Because it is commanded in the scripture. And let me remind you something about scripture. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 through 17. It is my prayer that our journey through James will bless you richly and encourage you in your spiritual lives. If you're not a born-again follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, stay tuned, and I'll share with you shortly how this can be your day of salvation. Until the next time we meet again, God bless and good night. If you're listening right now and you haven't accepted the Lord Jesus Christ Yeshua as your personal Lord and Savior, and you haven't accepted His holy sacrifice on the cross to pay for your sins, it is absolutely impossible for you to have a solid understanding of His Word. It's also impossible to find protection from the demonic realm and the days that are fast approaching, friends. And furthermore, it is impossible for you to have peace with Yahweh, the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. But here's the good news. You can start anew right now. You can repent of your sins and you can have the wages of your sins paid in full. Now is the time to repent and turn away from your sins and make right with the will of God. The Bible actually declares that we don't know what tomorrow holds, so we must take action with the time that we have right now. Repentance is the first step, regardless of what you may have heard. This means turning 180 degrees from your past thoughts, actions, and lifestyles that are in opposition to the Most High God. Understand that repentance is a process, and it is absolutely attainable because of the grace and mercy and power of God. Because of Jesus Christ and his once and for all sacrifice, you can be forgiven of all of your iniquity and every sin you've ever committed. Yahweh is a jealous God, but he is also rich in mercy. And tonight, if you're willing to admit your wrongs and repent, 
He is willing to meet you right where you are. And he will show you that mercy right now, friends. The wages of our sin is death. But tonight, we can receive the gift of God, which is eternal life, but only through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. I am so thankful that God sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, a living sacrifice, who shed his sinless and perfect blood to pay the debt of our sins, which offers us the ability to be seen as blameless before God on that day of judgment. And make no mistake, there will come a day of judgment, ladies and gentlemen. Let today be the beginning of your communion and peace with God as you are filled with the Holy Spirit and you can begin putting on the armor of God and growing in an intimate relationship with Him. It is the will of God that you don't perish, but rather that you repent and enter into a relationship with Him based on His terms. If you're not sure of what God's terms are, I want to challenge you to start reading your Bibles and learn firsthand what God expects from you. If you don't have a Bible, we highly recommend that you pick up a King James Bible, which is easy for anyone to find. Jesus Christ is our only hope, friends, and my prayer is that you believe on him tonight. That's the most important part of the show, and by far the most important decision you will ever have to make in this life. Amen. It's been an interesting adventure tonight, and I sure hope you've all enjoyed this broadcast. If you ever miss a show or would like to go back and re-listen to an old one, every show is archived on our website, fourthwatchradio.com, all spelled out, F-O-U-R-T-H-W-A-T-C-H-R-A-D-I-O.com, fourthwatchradio.com. There you'll find links to multiple streaming options, and every broadcast is dated and summarized for your convenience. Everything we offer is completely free, including our mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. You can easily click the link on the website to be taken to whichever app store applies to your device. Be sure to stay tuned in every Thursday for all the latest shows. Like us on Facebook and feel free to add my personal page as well. If the Fourth Watch is ministered to you and you would like to help support this ministry, you can follow the donate link on our website. I bid you all a week filled with grace and peace in the Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see you all next week. God bless and good night. You're listening to The Fourth Watch with Justin Fall on the Fourth Watch Radio Network.